Spiller out. And I'm your other host, and I'm taking a drink of coffee. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I actually didn't realize that I had started right it's as okay. you took it. And your name is I mean, is it was Robin a bad D. time to start taking a drink of coffee, yeah. to you be fair. You, you just said you're the other host. You didn't say your name, so yeah. you're Robin. Hi. I'm Robin. I'm drinking coffee. We forgot how to do this because we took a week off. Yeah, it feels like it's been forever. Does it, it feel like really it's been does. a long time to you? It feels like a million things have happened. Yeah. But then I think we did take it. Anyway, we, it feels yeah, like so it's been a yeah, while. It has been a while. It's been weird. But we're back. I think, yeah, we've been through like 16 <laughs> different Twitter discourses at this point. Oh which my kind God. of makes time feel like it's accelerating and also slowing down to the point of like singularity. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going through some stuff. Okay. Do you want to talk about why we didn't do a podcast last week, or do you want to wait? To, or is that what you're going to talk about at the end? I mean, I'll probably talk about it. I don't know. I'll think of something. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't record a podcast last week because I was traveling. I went to New York. I visited my bestest friends. Uh, I don't think you would like her very much, uh, but I think I, she's pretty cool. I don't like her. <laughs> But yeah, you were in New York um, and you got to hang out with me. Yeah, I was, in New York and I, was, I was fortunate enough to get to hang out with you. It was great. Yeah, it was really good. Um, we got dim sum with some of my friends from good old Pittsburgh. Uh, yeah, we went, we went to, to the Namwa Met. Tea Parlor, which is great. Namwa Tea Parlor, which is very cute. We ended up going during like the Lunar New Year. So uh, 85% of the street was covered in confetti, which was fun. Like, actually, super, super fun time to have been in Chinatown. Went to the Met, saw some very pretty dresses. If you're in oh, or around New York, so go to exhibits. the Met and see this fucking exhibit. It's yeah, so it's good. it's called Women Dressing Women. It is it is so worth seeing. It ruled. It's so good. I took so many pictures. <laughs> I took a picture of basically every piece that was on display yeah. by the end. It's <sighs> really, really wonderful. Yeah, but I did all that stuff. Uh, we also got dinner with uh, with our my editor, your former editor, Shannon <laughs> Liao, which was which was very fun. Yeah, that was um, a really fun dinner. Yeah, I like visited the office, and then we I just like brought Shannon to dinner <laughs> with us. Uh, it was a good time. What else did we do? I hung out on your couch. I slept on your couch. We played some foam stars. We did play foam stars. We played like literally the first night I was there. We were like, let's play some foam stars. Yeah. I mean, it's because we sat down and we were ordering food and then we were like, I don't know. What should we do? And I was just looking at the PlayStation and it was like foam stars. And let me tell you, that game was bad. That's a game you should certainly look forward to not playing because yeah. it was not fun at all. <laughs> I could not even comprehend what was happening in it. No. Apparently, I did pretty good at it. Not that I could tell mm -hmm. you what was going on on screen. It's right. impossible to follow. I couldn't tell. I mean, you've uh, you've done some research into the world of foam stars as well, which I, I think did. the world will benefit from greatly. I tried to. I did try to figure out where the foam comes from. Turns out it's come. <laughs> Honestly, I think it's more like a mucus, like a secreted Ugh, fluid. God, duh. Um, is my understanding. I guess that's technically better, but still. Uh, yeah, this all started because Dash, uh, Dashel Wood, tweeted a, of course it was all Dash's fault. Um, it started with a tweet that he made, which was a screenshot of one of the characters being like, they hated me. It was like, essentially, they hated me because I secreted foam. And we were all like, wait a minute, wait a minute, take me back, take it, take it a step back. The foam comes from them. It, so, so all the times everybody was like, this game is about shooting cum. <laughs> And Square right, Enix was like, hey, don't say that. It's not that. Actually, it just is. The reason they didn't want you to say that is because it's a spoiler, not because it's wrong. Yeah, broke embargo. <laughs> <laughs> embargo said, don't mention foam has come. Yeah. Um, yeah, they do lean into it, though. We yeah, there's some there's some challenging content vis-a-vis -vis foam in this game. My theory, though, is that foam the foam stars in this game who secrete foam, my theory is that they're essentially the X-Men of the foam stars universe. I don't like how much you're saying secrete foam. And here's my reasoning. It's because there's a th there's a thing in the game called bubble energy. 
And they don't really talk about this in detail beyond the fact that in the world of foam stars, it's represented as essentially being nuclear energy. Like Uh they harness bubble energy to power the world. And if, if a bubble energy core, which is like a power plant essentially, gets like destroyed it'll cause like a massive explosion that would destroy the city and my theory is is that there is some kind of adverse effect from the bubble energy core and Mm, it's caused mutations in the population as nuclear energy did for the human population and caused the x-men which is why they're called the children of the atom the children of the bubble i yeah the children of the bubble (laughs) the (laughs) f-men see i was going the other direction and i was like are those power plants then just harnessing the energy of the foam these people are excreting is is a bubble energy power plant just filled with a bunch of people shooting foam to power the city. <laughs> you just clock into work and yeah. secrete foam all day. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It raised a lot of questions and left. It gave me like li- little answer. Mm-hmm. Um, it raised a lot of questions and I, I feel worse for having had them answered. Kind of. It's you feel like it's a low. Bo- it's it's a really not a good sign of this game. If I come away saying that the most interesting part of Foam Stars to me is the lore. Yeah, that's not a good sign. <laughs> yeah. The other thing we played though that day is that was also the time they ho- they held the Final Fantasy state of play. So they released the Rebirth demo. Thank fucking mm-hmm. God, because it meant we stopped playing Foam Stars, and then. Yes. Uh, you just watched me as I played the demo, which is essentially the Nibelheim flashback. I'm pretty excited for this game because I loved Remake. And I think uh, there were some things about the demo that I liked, mainly the story. Mainly, it's so cool to see all these characters back. Tifa, you get to see young Tifa in her cowboy outfit. Yes, it's oh my gosh, that and she's it, so, it's so like adorable. snarky and yes, it's so fun. I think both of our favorite part of the demo had to do with Tifa as well. Where if you remember from the original Final Fantasy VII, there's a time where you can during this part you can get, when you're you know visiting because Cloud and Tifa grew up in Nibelheim. You can go into Tifa's house and there's a part where you can basically like go through her underwear drawer and Tifa calls you out for it. Like when she realized that this happened. So the version of this in the demo is like Cloud is like in a, a an inn with like everybody gathered around. He's telling the story. Um, so the whole party is there and you can go into Tifa's house and she's like, you went to my house and it's, you know, she's like kind of like weirded out by it. And you can be like, yeah, I know I went in and looked around. And then if you go into a room, she's like, you went into my room and it's like even more weirded out. And you're like, yeah, you know, and then you can open up her like cloth. It's like a dresser, but you know, or like a armoire or something you just open up and you like, he kind of looks in and then closes it and backs away. And if you do that, she's like, you, you looked through my stuff. And if you tell her, yes, I did. Tifa and Aerith at the same time just go, asshole. It's so and cute. It's amazing. It's women supporting women. We love to see it. Tifa and Aerith, power couple. It's very funny. Yeah. The thing, <laughs> I don't know if, okay, so if you care about spoilers for the original Final Fantasy VII, I have a brief aside. So I don't know, skip ahead like a minute to be safe. Uh, but one thing that I thought was hilarious and I hadn't thought about until playing this demo is how obvious the twist that Cloud misremembers Nibelheim is. Because I don't think it's that obvious. I, I think it's I only do. obvious if you know it. Because, but here's the thing you start and immediately uh, Cloud talks to one of the soldiers and they talk back to back with each other and it's just the same voice. Like you hear Cloud basically say something back and you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. I don't know how much that comes across there if you're not looking for it though. Okay. Um, that was just my thought. And then the other thing that oh, was really fun about this demo is that you get to play a Sephiroth for a bit. Yeah. I liked that. I think he plays really good. It's good combat. The thing that I couldn't stop thinking about, though, was in earlier Final Fantasy games, there was this great thing that they were able to do where they would do narrative. They would like explain a character's incredible power through gameplay because it would be the turn-based system. And in the flashback in the original one, you go in a party with Sephiroth and then you like do an attack 
And it's immediately like Sephiroth did 999 damage and you're like, oh, Mm -hmm. shit. And then they just can't do that in this game because it's like the real time action and you attack and it's you just start attacking. And it's like you're clearly more powerful than Cloud, but Mm -hmm. it's not like it doesn't have the same. You know, kind of power as we've seen him have in like remake where he could clearly just destroy all these things with like a flick of his wrist. But it's like, you know, I get it. It's it's whatever. I don't know. I feel like they could have done it still. Just like have him take these things out in in one hit. But then that doesn't work if you get to play with him the whole time because then it just gets boring. I think the thing that that like we were talking about was like um it's also it's trying to it's like a basically tutorial at this point too. Like it's trying to teach you how to play the game as it shows you this flashback. And so it kind of needs you to be engaging in the combat like if sephiroth was just taking things out with one hit you wouldn't be really learning the systems but i think a very easy fix for that is just like do the tutorial as cloud take over as sephiroth for a while see how powerful he is then switch back to cloud which i would have liked better but it's you know it's kind of a it's a fairly minor point yeah given that like i think they've they've very clearly established sephiroth's power at this point in a way that they hadn't in the original game yeah i and i also think overall i was just like God damn, I'm so into these games, though, because you just walk past Nibelheim and you start going up Mount Nebel and like you get this gorgeous view of like the Mm -hmm. reactor in the mountain and the score is playing. And I'm just like, oh, fuck, we are so back. Yes, we were both like losing it at at the when the song comes in. It's it's I mean, for like the whole week, we were just humming the songs from this demo (laughs) because this game's score is just like so fucking iconic Mm -hmm. i remember we just kept saying to each other we were like do you ever think nabu uometsu is just like hanging out and is just like you know i really went off with this one (laughs) yeah and he's just eating breakfast and he's like god damn he's like damn remember when i wrote Aerith's theme that one fucks yeah (laughs) (laughs) and he'd be right oh another thing was uh we discovered how hilarious the limited physics of this game are oh my god yes because there's one the best part of the game yeah there's like it's all (laughs) chairs really it's chairs and then a couple like small tables or things that Mm -hmm. are like have collision physics and you can push them around in the demo there's the scene where you go to shinra manor and you go into the like underground hallway to go see sephiroth oh my gosh this was yes this was so funny right before it there's a bunch of things with physics and you can just push them all into the hallway and then it goes into like a very dramatic cutscene, and then all that shit is just still there and it's like blocking sephiroth from the camera yeah when the yeah like it was like sephiroth having this like extreme extremely dramatic thing where he like learns his origin and it's like how he sort of like snaps and becomes a villain and it zooms out and it's just like a filing cabinet in front of him in the hallway it was extremely funny apparently they're adding the junon region to the demo yeah like this week i apparently i mean it, yeah you know, the game comes out in like a little over weeks, a week at this point it's got to be this yeah. week that the demo happens yeah so that'll be interesting um i know that they've said that if you play the demo You'll be able to skip like some stuff when the full game yeah. comes out, which good. That would not be fun to replay all that, especially that yeah. one crawling sequence uh, or limping oh God, sequence. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we'll have a lot more to say about this game when it comes out. There was one other game that we played, though, while you were in New York. In fact, right. it was the, the, the reason, reason that I was in New York. <laughs> yeah, I came to New York because there was a preview for Unicorn Overlord, which is the upcoming Vanillaware game. Uh, It's like, we knew that it was like a strategy game from Vanillaware. We'd seen like, they've been doing a lot of like, kind of like press release stuff to introduce like different systems and the characters and like focus on specific things. But we didn't know what the combat was like. Like they had not quite said how the game would function in combat, which was kind of the big question because they've also said that the game is like very combat focused. So I think everyone, certainly I was like, how, how is it going to function? And so I got to go to preview and find out. And uh, due to some schedule shuffling at Kotaku.com, you also came to the preview, Indeed. which was very fun. Yeah, uh, We got to sit in on the same preview session, which was very funny. 
But yeah, so we both got to play about four hours of Unicorn Overlord. Basically the opening. They just dropped us in and like, go. You broke the demo, which was very funny. I'm sorry that I'm just so good at the game. Yeah. They just, they couldn't, they weren't anticipating a games journalist being good enough at the game to finish the demo. So they just didn't finish that part of it. Yeah. Uh, It was, that was very funny. It was essentially like, they had told me that nobody had beat the demo and I was like... Which you took as a personal challenge. That's kind of wild. Yeah, I did take it as a challenge. So I basically tried to beeline it to the what was clearly kind of like the big climactic fight that they had for us. Mm-hmm. And I got there and I was like level four and it was like, you should be level eight to do this. Like, you're probably going to get fucked up if you try to do this. And I was like, it's fine if I don't... <laughs> Like, if it is actually hard, then I'll just go do other things in the world. I'll explore and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then I sat down and I got into the fight. And then like half an hour to 45 minutes later, I somehow finished it and had won <laughs> through a lot of strategic thinking and a couple uh, very useful save scumming moments. <laughs> um but yeah, then I came out on the other side and I defeated the boss and then the demo just crashed and I had to go talk to them and they were like, wait, what do you mean you <laughs> finished? Yeah, I just saw you like get up from your station and kind of like laugh as you walked out and then you sheepishly came back in with like four dudes <laughs> had to like see what you had done and reset your machine. But Aside from learning that Willa is a tactical genius, uh, unlike any the world has known, uh, we did also get to learn, like, what the fuck this game is. Uh, And as it turns out, it fucking rips. Yeah. Um, I think we we both have some complaints with the game, but I think we, I mean, with, you know, the bit that we played, but I think we both walked away being like, okay, this is super fun. And I'm, I at least was, like, very eager to to keep playing. The... It's so weird because I, I, they, it's, they haven't really shown too much, like we were saying, of what exactly this actually is in practice. Yeah. And I kind of, after playing it, realize and like understand because I'm like, having tried mm-hmm. to write a preview explaining this game, I'm like, this is so hard to explain how yes. all these systems work together to make a battle because there's yeah. a million fucking systems. But somehow they makes, all work together and it becomes this fucking incredible, like really adrenaline pumping and like tactical real time combat. That's like so rewarding. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that they haven't shown it in those press things, because I think if you just kind of saw one side of it, you would be like, what that what is this? Um, but yeah, we we both kind of struggled with this as we were writing our previews because we ended up spending like so many words just explaining what the systems were before we could even get to like impressions of it in any way but the way it basically shakes out is like when you go into like combat stages you have a world map and you can assign you you have like a ton of different units like by the end of this demo you have like 20 different units or something that you can sort into different squads of like two to four people you can get more than that but like in this early stage that's kind of the max that you're probably able to get and you can move those individual squads around the map uh you can like give them each individual orders but they and the enemies all move at the same time and when a squad of like your allies and your enemies collide they go into battle and when that happens everything goes automatic you don't control, it's not a turn-based thing, you're not picking skills, it's just like your guys attack and the enemies attack. And the way that that's set up is before battle, you can set up these tactics through this other menu where you can tell every member of your squad, like, use this, heal an ally if they're below 50% energy, target anyone who has armor with this attack. It's the it's Final very... Fantasy twelve Gambit system. Yeah, you mentioned Gambits. I thought of it like Dragon Age Origins. Like it's it's if you've played a game like that where you can kind of set tactics, it's pretty familiar, except like that's doing all of the work. And there's all kinds of other stuff. You have abilities you can use on the map. You can, there's just all kinds of other layers to it. But it basically amounts to like deciding on a strategy beforehand based on what you know you're going to face and then watching this clash happen and hoping that 
the battle turns out the way that you thought it would, uh, which is a very interesting type of strategy. Like it's not something I've seen lean quite so hard into that, like sort of programming tactics thing before. Um, but yeah, I really ended up enjoying it. I had a lot of fun, like switching around my units and seeing, you know, oh, if, if I move Chloe to this one instead of this one and have her heal this guy instead of attacking, like just all the different ways you can arrange the units you have to just kick people's asses it was very fun. As a, as a side note, if you do want to read one of our previews about this, you should read Robin's because I think she did a much better job <laughs> at making the systems <laughs> Yours is good too. readable. <laughs> I read Robin's and I was like, oh, fuck, I can actually pay attention uh-huh. to this, which at uh-huh, times I you. couldn't say in the own article that I wrote. <laughs> um, I don't think that's true. But yeah, the 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 tactic system is awesome. I love anything that pulls from the gambit system because I think it's smart. I love the idea that there's like two stages and the first is before you even enter combat where it's like you have to spend so much time game planning. Like here's the strategy I'm going to go for. Here's how I'm going to like use characters to um, do that. And here's how I want them to respond in fights. And then the second stage is just semi-strategical of guiding them around the map but like a lot of it is kind of like crossing your fingers and being like well Mm -hmm. i hope i made a right choice and that's really neat uh there's the added thing that i love of there are the win conditions every time you enter a combat encounter which for the for like you the player is is usually beat whatever fucking big bad is at the end of the map and then for the enemy though it's capture your command post there, you start at a command post where you deploy your squads and enemy units will always be coming to try to get it because if they capture it, the battle is over. And early on, there's not a lot going on in battles and they're kind of small. So you're so you're like, whatever, this doesn't really matter. I'm just going to send out my unit, my um, squads and just go like bulldoze the enemy. But by the time you got like I got to the back of the preview and there there were these like massive battles with like so many enemy squads and just like across a huge swath of the map, you start forgetting or like not realizing what every enemy is doing. And if you're not careful, then before you know it, one of them will just walk up on your undefended command post and capture it. And then you're just done. Mm hmm. And if that happened to you, that would can, suck. Yeah. It didn't happen to me be, because I knew oh, what the fuck I was doing. It would be humiliating doing. if that happened to you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what fucked me in this demo. Because <laughs> once you had beaten it, I was like, well, I have to beat it now. I can't let Willa be better at this game than me. Spoiler alert, she is. Yeah, for like for the, mo- the first couple battles, it tends to be like your command post is on one end and the enemies is on the other end, and you can basically go in a straight line to get to the enemy's, like, objective. So if they're trying to come for your base, you'll just intercept them on the way, so it doesn't really matter. The final map, though, is so big, and there's different paths that, like, the path you take to get to the enemy's base is not necessarily the path that they can take to get to yours. And so I had left, like, one squad of just, like, a really heavily armored person and... And then like a, you know, an attacker there at my base just to stop anyone from capturing it, you know, just like maybe not even kill them, but just like chip away at their health and push them back. And then at one point I like after a battle, I like chased an enemy because they only had a little bit of health left. So I was like, I'll just chase them and finish them off. And then I got so wrapped up in fighting the boss that I forgot that I had to like made them leave the base. So I was like in this fight with this final enemy, I was like. I really felt like I was cheesing my way through it. Like I was so underprepared. Like I did not arrange my squads in a good way, but just through like using all of my kind of like special abilities and just like brute force, I'd finally whittled them down to like the point where uh, the other thing is like, it shows you like what's going to happen in a battle. Like before your squads connect, it shows you like how much damage each side will do based on the tactics it's like you've set. Fire Emblem when they clash and it's essentially like, hey, yeah. this is going to do this much damage and you're going to get this da- much damage done to you. Yeah. So I had I knew like that from checking beforehand that this squad was going to kill the boss 
without dying themselves in this turn. And I was like, great. So I sent them toward the boss. And as they were moving on the map, like about to connect with him, I got a giant game over screen <laughs> and the camera like panned back to my base where some lone little unit had come by and snuck by my armored person and captured at like the last possible second, which like I was so mad. <laughs> it was so annoying. But I think it's also like kind of a cool sign about like, the complexity of this game and like how well you have to play like you can't it's kind of hard to brute force your way through if you're not thinking strategically and i think that's a cool that's that's a really good point of it yeah it's one of the reasons i liked that i could kind of cheese my way through the boss because i was like well it's a strategy game and i'm just really focusing on strategy and the game was like mm -hmm. yeah cool you can do that and you did it well so you succeed um and i think that's awesome in a strategy game uh, the other end of this that is also there is you collect units, you like gain more units by exploring the world and mm -hmm. running into special NPCs that have like side quests of their own. Um, the thing that I thought of was like Suikoden, how there's like in Suikoden, you totally. have like a million people that you can get to join your party and each of them typically has a quest associated with them. It's very much that a lot of these characters seemed really interesting. Um mm -hmm. There was a witch named Yona that I met. There was an angel who was really cool. This is probably the most interesting narrative stuff this game has. Uh, the main story, as far as we've seen in four hours, will not be anything to write home about, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does seem that way. It's a fairly standard, like, taking back your kingdom story because your kingdom is invaded and you have to go and whatever, defeat the evil army to get it back. But yeah, it seems like where the the kind of fun stuff will be is in these, these side quests with, um, you know, members of your army or enemies or whatever. Uh, they seem to have a lot more personality in them than like the kind of main thrust of the narrative does. So I'm hoping that that works out. It does help that a lot of them are hot, strong women which is great. And they all have the great Vanillaware art design. <laughs> they have great Vanillaware art. Uh, they are not uh, Dragon's Crown Sorceress level, which I think is good. They're not a little yet. more... Not um, that we've seen. Not yet. They could be there, but I I'm kind of glad that they're reining them into the uh, <laughs> the realm of like anatomical possibility, which is, uh, you know, handy. I think my overall takeaway was like, Despite the story seemingly being incredibly uninteresting, uh, my big takeaway was like, and I don't care, and that won't deter me from getting this game because the combat is so fucking yeah. good. I feel like that's kind of a vanillaware thing sometimes, too, where like the story is kind of like generic fantasy, but somehow it works. Like just the tone of it is not. I don't know, like it doesn't get too self-serious or too like bogged down in politics it's not like game of thrones like it's a little more fairy tale than that mm -hmm. and i think that's to its benefit because you can kind of just go this is like a storybook narrative it's whatever it's not meant to be deep and complex and it just like is there to keep the story to keep things moving along i think it does really well with that um the exception there is is their last game 13 sentinels which was a visual like as as we were told even at the beginning of this preview they basically said like if you've played 13 sentinels you'll remember that it's a visual novel with some strategy elements this is basically the reverse it's a strategy game and the story kind of takes a backseat and that's definitely the case i think coming after 13 sentinels that's what sort of makes it disappointing that the story is less so like i wouldn't have expected it from vanillaware after you know, Grim Grimoire or Dragon's Crown or something. But after 13 Sentinels, I was hoping more of that would seep in. But I think just the way that development timelines work out, like they hadn't, it just, it, that just wasn't going to influence this game. So yeah, my thing is, um, I think it's one of those things where it's like, it's not their fault necessarily that they made a really mm -hmm. good narrative game. And, but <laughs> it's, it's in yeah. fact great. But I think that Vanillaware has always been sort of like a niche developer for a lot of people. Like they have a fan base, but it's smaller than, you know, most places. Yeah. Um, and they really got more popular thanks to 13 Sentinels. Mm -hmm. um, and I think now people who are like, I love 13 Sentinels 
oh, there ha- this like developer has a new game are going to come into it and kind of be like, oh, that's not what I want. I'm turned off. The other this the situation that it reminded me of that I think we'll see is the three houses situation, which is that Fire Emblem Three Houses was like took the world by storm, rightfully so, because it's incredible. But people mm-hmm. loved it because of like all the relationship dynamics and like all this, in addition to the good, you know, combat. But then after that, with Engage, I think more people than ever were interested in like the next Fire Emblem. And then it came out mm-hmm. and like, despite from what I've heard from a lot of people who have said, including you, that like the combat in Engage is like actually pretty good. And I've heard people say they like it more than Three Houses. The story and the relationship and all that stuff is like just not anywhere near as good or even like there, which made people unhappy. And I think there's a risk of that happening. I think the the difference, like the reason Unicorn Overlord, I think, is in a better place is because, yeah, I was one of those people who the combat in Engage is absolutely better than it is in Three Houses. Like there's no question about that. But I ended up not liking the game because the story was so bad. Whereas Unicorn Overlord, it's like the story is bad, but the combat's good, but I actually like it. And I think the difference is that like Fire Emblem Engage focused on its story so much. Like there was so much story in it, that, but it was just bad. Whereas Unicorn Overlord seems to understand like that that's not really why you're here. So it kind of keeps things moving. I think it also benefits from Unicorn Overlord being a very, it's just a, not even basically related to 13 Sentinels. Like they feel totally different to play. Whereas with Engage in Three Houses, it's essentially the same type. It's, you know, it's the same genre of game, but one just had a really good story and one didn't. Whereas this is just like a story is just not what they're, it's just not what they're going for. And I think that's like, that's a cool thing that like, that's something that I've always really appreciated about Vanillaware is their games are like, you know, there's like a, a, 2d kind of like tower defense strategy game there's a couple of different like action platformers that feel very different from each other there's a visual novel now now there's a strategy game like they do a really good job of jumping from genre to genre while still maintaining their kind of identity and i think that's like a really impressive thing for them to pull off and i think that's what also gives me confidence here is they seem to know what the game they're making needs and they don't try to add all this other kind of cruft into it that, that the game doesn't need to succeed. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I am looking forward to this game still. That's kind of like my takeaway from the preview is I think this will be fun. <laughs> yeah. I think this combat mm-hmm. is just too good to be t- like pulled down by a story that isn't very important anyways. So did you have some other stuff that you wanted to talk to me about? Any soapboxes you wanted to get on? <laughs> Um, d- d- uh, mini soapbox. I mean, I just wanted to bring up because we, we, you and I, and also like games journalists in general spend so much time focusing on the game awards. Uh, and recently that has been focusing on how much the game awards are terrible that I do just want to shine a little bit of light on the dice awards, which happened, uh, over yeah, earlier this week. Uh, the, yeah, the awards are given out by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences. They are an industry award as opposed to the game awards, which are, you know, driven by media and fan voting and stuff. This is like the games industry uh, honoring its own members, like in the way that the Oscars do. Right. It's, it's the Oscars of video games, if you will, since we didn't have one of those yet. And it's obviously a much smaller show, like as far as production goes, because it doesn't have this huge. I mean, it does have a web stream, but it's not this like massive trying to be like a star studded thing that that is very glitzy and glamorous or whatever. It is a it's a show that's about honoring developers in a way that the Game Awards is a is a show about promoting the games industry. And I think that's a huge difference, which you will very much get if you watch the Dice live stream. I think it makes sense that not as many people watch it because it's not, you know, just shooting bright colors into your eyeballs like it's a much more. um sort of restrained show, even though it is very like enjoyable to watch. But I think the big difference, like one of the big complaints that everyone had this year, very rightfully, is that the Game Awards was unbelievably disrespectful to developers, cutting off speeches, giving them 30 seconds to talk, not letting Larian honor like 
a member of their team who had passed away and all the people who had been laid off that year. Just really, really grotesque stuff. Compared to that, the Dice Awards, like, when someone wins, they get to go up and give a long speech. And it's just a night and day difference. Like, you can tell which award shows are made for public consumption and which ones are made for actually honoring developers. And I think you can even see that in, like, the winners. Like, when... Baldur's Gate won a bunch of awards, so I forget which one this was, but there was there was a point where Larian was on stage a lot and they gave like lots of very good speeches. The one that I saw going around the most though, and like seemed to be the most impactful, was Larian's like director of publishing. His name is Michael Douse. He gave this speech that was basically like talking about the layoffs, acknowledging the like difficult state the industry is in in a way that everyone wanted the game awards to. And also speaking directly to developers in that and saying, like, uh, acknowledging the pain that has been caused this year and also saying, like, we still need people to keep doing this. Like, there's a reason to keep doing this and people still care about the work that you do. And it was just like such an emotional moment that you only get if you actually focus on the developers. You know, if you if you do the thing that you say your award show is about. And then there was like. Koji Kondo was on stage and got to give a, a long speech that actually gave him time to talk and like speak through a translator. I don't know. It was just such a better show in so many ways. And even there were um there were times when like it, you know, it wasn't all about that though. Like there were speeches that they gave up that were like very funny. It's just like developers just getting up and being very human. And it's just, I don't know, the whole night was just full of moments of like, this is such a better show. And I wish so much that we cared about this more than we care about the game awards. I feel like it's that's not a thing that's going to happen for very for some pretty clear reasons. But if you were pissed off about the Game Awards or felt let down by the Game Awards or just want to see, like, what does the industry honoring itself, like its own members look like? I just like really recommend checking out the Dice Awards and paying attention to that because it's just such a you'll walk away from it, like actually feeling good about video games, which is a, a rare thing to feel, I think. Yeah, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. I think it just goes back to what we said about this last time. Like, just pay attention to other awards shows. Nothing will replace the Game Awards, but it doesn't mean you can't, like, look into these things also. There were a couple other news things that I wanted to bring up for you because I think it would be fun to, like, tell you about them. These are not in, like, time order. These are not in chronological order, so I'm just rattling off things. Um, The most recent one is that there was a quote unquote like report from insider gaming that you need more quotes around i know apparently jeff grubb is also saying the same thing so okay yeah whatever that's whatever you whatever you think that's worth but Mm -hmm. apparently respawn entertainment is working on another star wars game and it's a it's a star wars game about a mandalorian bounty hunter and it's going to be a linear narrative game that focuses on like high mobility and using a jetpack. <laughs> somehow, what a cool idea no one's ever had before. Somehow, Star Wars thirteen thirteen returned. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, I just saw people mentioning this on Twitter, and I was like, I don't care enough to look this up. Um, interesting. Okay, I don't know. It's the one thing is the one thing that makes me kind of care isn't the Star Uh Wars of it at all. It's the description of what the gameplay is supposed to be like and the fact that it's Respawn, which I'm like, I can just pretend this is a Titanfall game. Yes. Because it's going to be a first-person shooter with high mobility and a jetpack that allows for, like, sliding, boosting, double jumping, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. And I was like, I've played a Respawn game like this before, (laughs) and it was one of the best shooters ever made. Mm-hmm. So, you know, God willing, they're able to uh, make the Titanfall game. They so clearly should God. just under the name of Star Wars, because that's all that yeah. can be done now. Respawn, they're just edging everyone with Titanfall at this point. They keep putting Titanfall shit into Apex Legends and then they make this game. It's just like the issue is, is that they're owned by EA and they clearly want yes, to make a Titanfall yeah. game, but they can't. And like their Apex Legends has been doing well enough for them. And obviously they made the Star Wars games, which did really well. And at this point, EA is like, cool. Now you will only make Star Wars and this live service shooter. And they're like, please let us do Titanfall. (laughs) 
And then EA is like, you can do a bounty hunter game. And they're like, we're just going to make Titanfall. We'll call it a bounty hunter game, though. I hope this is true and I hope it works out because it sounds like the most Titanfall-esque thing they would be making. Yes, totally. And I want that. Uh, The other thing that happened was on Valentine's Day this year, a big milestone happened for one of the most anticipated games ever, which was that it has now been five years since Hollow Knight Silksong was first announced. <laughs> Congratulations, Silksong. We're giving a late uh, girly award for the uh, most anticipated game measured in linear time. Yeah. The longest anticipated game goes I saw to Silksong. I saw someone say that it's now the same amount of like time that Metroid Prime 4 had been announced for, <laughs> but with the caveat that the last, it's actually been five years since Nintendo said Metroid Prime 4 has restarted development, <laughs> which is even worse. Okay, what if these games both come out on the same day i will play hollow knight silk song i that's not even a question i did see a lot of talk about this and i do think there's something interesting about it actually which is that obviously it's a small team team cherry is small and you know a lot of people are of the mind of like take as much time as you need make the game as you want it and i think i have a lot of thoughts on this not all of them Mm -hmm pro that which is that i think there's an inclination to like constantly be like developers take time and i love that and i don't think it's the developer's fault inherently that we have this now where it's like games are being made in such long time periods but i was like hollow knight was developed in like two years three years um Mm -hmm. by this a small team and they delivered and it was one of the best games ever. It's the best Metroidvania. And now the project that started out as DLC for that game is now like nearly twice as long in development time. And I, I, we obviously have no idea what the reason is, but there's a lot of assumptions and like guesses that can be made of like, is it scope? Has Is scope an issue? Like they over you know, they they got in over their head and they like made something massive that just is taking forever. Is it that they're just fine tuning everything? And I've seen a lot of people be like, take as long as you need. And I disagree because I think no game should have to take this long. And it sucks that games do now because we have this idea that games are too much of an investment. So they have to be perfect to sell a bajillion copies to make like the money back. And like, mm-hmm. I just it's so wild in theory to see like the direct change in development and everything from Hollow Knight to Silk Song, which has now been like forever. And we know very much like very little truly about what is going to ha- come out of it. And it's like really kind of scary because I'm kind of like there's a non-zero chance that that game comes out and it's like. They just miss the mark. And then at that point, I think if that happens, I think Team Cherry is going to be fucked forever and everybody's going to be like, well, they were a one hit wonder. We're going to move on. And then they're fucked. And they spent five years on a game. The longer it takes, I think the more worried I get Mm -hmm. because it's like, why is it taking this long? Is it like, you know, is is it not working? Like, are they at a point where they're just like, this is not a functional game or like you said is it scope is it like okay well people are expecting this so we need to add this and da, 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 da. And it's like what obviously we don't know the reasons but whatever they are like the longer the game stays in development the more what you said about like games needing to be and you know pay back their investment and like the rising costs and stuff the more true that becomes because like the longer it takes to develop a game the more expensive it becomes the team is trying to outrun itself where like it needs to be so good to recoup this investment but the investment keeps getting larger and larger and larger it's yeah it's just it's kind of worrying to see it's it's weird to me because it's also like honestly it's weird for me to see an indie game go through this and it's like obviously it's Mm -hmm. kind of like indie asterisks because i feel like this is so different from other indie games with how high profile it is but it is something that has been discussed a lot of like the change in how development has happened. And I always go back to thinking about Naughty Dog on the PlayStation 3. And the reason that Naughty Dog was so 
important in the PlayStation 3 and people respected them so much that I always think about is they started with Drake's Fortune being the first Uncharted game. And it was like, okay, cool. This has issues, but cool. And then they made Uncharted 2, which was amazing. And then they made Uncharted 3, which is even maybe not even more amazing, but there's a lot of things about it that are more impressive, like graphically. And then they closed out the same console generation in the span of like seven years with a fourth game. And it was The Last of Us. And it was like the culmination of everything they'd done in one console cycle. And you could see how a team and a studio was able to like over several projects in one console lifespan, like learn how to perfectly work with that console and like make something incredible um and you just don't see that anymore because now games like one game from a studio like naughty dog will take like an entire console lifetime to develop yeah it's like they're learning to work with new hardware every time they make a game Mm -hmm. and that's such like just the like institutional knowledge that could be there if that weren't the case and i think like in you know in games on like the naughty dog side a lot of that is like i don't know we've talked about a bunch like graphical fidelity is eating the industry alive and there's sort of like scope expectations and things like that it's just it's so strange to see it from a smaller team with that isn't going for that kind of thing that isn't making it a live service game with photorealistic graphics and all that shit like the the same sort of pressures are acting on them even when the technological or uh i don't know industry expectations aren't aren't on them in the same way Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think the only other bit of news that we wanted to talk about was this whole stupid Microsoft event, quote unquote event, the podcast. Yeah, um, I like worked late that day because we we're like, oh, well, we got to cover this. So I'm going to make sure I'm there. I had to pre-rate this thing and I'm like, it's ready for as soon as the news drops. Because so for like, yeah, I don't set know, the stage. forever. Yeah. <laughs> There have been rumors for a really long time that Game Pass was coming to other consoles normally. Like, usually people talk about it coming to the Switch was, like, the biggest rumor. And, you know, there's also talk of, like, things that were Xbox exclusives possibly coming to other consoles. And those rumors have taken, you know, kind of various different forms. But in the past couple of weeks, those, those rumors had sort of sharpened into being sort of a, a couple specific games were being bandied about where people were saying like Hi-Fi Rush and Pentiment are probably coming to other consoles. And then people started talking about maybe Starfield is coming to PS5 and the upcoming Indiana Jones game was going to launch on the PS5. So there were just all these rumors swirling around. And then Xbox announces we're going to have a, we're going to release a business update on the future of our our consoles and our games. And we're going to do it in the form of a podcast, which is, just a deranged idea. Never, no one should ever make a podcast for any reason. First of all, but also just like releasing this in this news as a pod. It's so strange. It's so strange. So anyway, the day comes and goes, and it's um, they release this podcast at three p.m. Eastern. So everybody's ready to write their little stories, and the podcast comes out, and the news is uh, Xbox is bringing four games to other consoles. They don't say what those games are. But they do say two of them are going to be live service games and two of them are going to be hidden gem games, quote unquote, and that they've all been on Xbox for at least a year. And also Starfield and Indiana Jones are not among those games. And also Xbox Game Pass isn't coming to other consoles. (laughs) And it was just like the most deflating news. Like everyone was so ready for this bombshell. And then it's just like, you're going to get a couple games We'll tell you what they are later. They're not a really a big deal. Also, we're working on a new Xbox. There were also rumors about like an Xbox handheld, kind of. Those were like even less substantiated. But they were like, uh, we're making a new console. We're not going to talk about handhelds. Uh, in this event, actually talking about the new console, Sarah Bond said it's going to be, the uh, he's the president of Xbox, said it's going to be the largest technological leap you've ever seen between console generations. And... The thing about that is, no, it's not. No, it there's fucking just isn't. simply no way that's going to happen. It's an absolute lie to say that. It's crazy that they said that. I mean, 
I don't know. They all like all of the companies say like this is going to be such a big leap. But to specifically say it's like the biggest like technological leap, it's like no, it is not. Did you see the it's leap from the not... SNES to the PlayStation One? Exactly. Remember when we didn't have games in 3D and then we did? <laughs> that was pretty a big fucking deal. Like, yes, yeah, I don't Sarah. know what the fuck they think they're talking. Come on, Sarah. Uh, yeah, it was um, so stupid. It was all like business bullshit with nothing actually told. They tried to like give out some information because they were also like, oh, hey, remember we bought Activision Blizzard? Diablo 4 is going to be the first Activision Blizzard game on Game Pass. And I was like, okay, I don't give a shit. Whatever. It was so nothing. I remember we were all like... It was such a tremendous waste of time. (laughs) We were in the office, like, sitting like, oh, we're going to refresh and it's going to be there. And then we we saw it and we started listening and we were like, this is so stupid. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. have to say, Alyssa Akotaku wrote a really funny piece, which was essentially just, this could have been an email. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm like, you're so fucking right, because this was a joke. Yes. And you I know, said I this. wish I hadn't like pre-written so much news because I wish I could have just dunked on it, but I was like, I already did all this fucking work. And I'm just gonna you, this told, story you said this to me. You were like, I don't know why they like did all this preamble for this podcast with like Phil Spencer being like, We hear you. We're gonna talk on it next week. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna talk on it. It's gonna be about the future of Xbox. And it's like Honestly, dude, you could have got on there and you said this. You should have just gone on Twitter and be like, hey, all those rumors are overblown. We're bringing four games like it's not Indiana Jones. It's not Starfield. Like it's going to be fine, guys. It's a weird decision. I was I was talking about a bit about this with Shannon as well, where like it kind of feels like they saw all the hype that was being built up around these potential announcements and they thought that if they made a big enough deal about these ones, the hype that people had for the things they wanted would just sort of transfer onto the things they were getting instead. But instead it was just like making the announcement in the way that like announcing the podcast was going to come to address the rumors and making it such a big event sort of felt like a tacit acknowledgement that at least part of them were true. So it really feels like having the rug pulled out from under you to be like, don't worry, guys, we're going to like address all this. We're going to make a big spectacle of it just to tell you that that's not happening and you're not getting what you want. It's just so strange. It's also like at this point, what are you how is it helping you to not just come out and be like, OK, we're doing four games. Here they are. Like, these are the ones. Anyways, we're moving on. Well, I mean, they said doing the thing they want to let the developers announce them, which is fine. But if you're going to do that, do that at the same time. Yeah. Don't announce and then be like. In a month or two, you'll hear about it. Also, I'm sorry, Phil, but you own all these developers. Like, it's not <laughs> right, like they're could. making these decisions without your approval anyways. Like, come on. Yes. Yeah, totally. It's it was it was weird. I don't know. Do you want it was a waste of everyone's time? Do you want to know what I honestly expected them to bring to uh, other platforms? <laughs> what? But it doesn't quite fit the bin on Xbox for one year thing. Hmm. I thought they were going to be like, hey, guys, we're bringing Redfall <laughs> because that game did so that would bad. Be so funny. That game sucks so much and did so bad. And bringing it multi-platform is probably like the only way they can try to get a little bit more revenue out of it. It doesn't hurt them at all. Also, you know? you know, they're probably just like, hey, Bethesda, remember when we told you to stop developing Redfall for PlayStation 5? Can you just dust off that build you had? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, funny listen. story. <laughs> You kept that, right? Yeah. Like, oh shit, we th- we we emptied our recycling bin. Yeah, so people are saying now it's probably going to be Hi-Fi Rush, Pentiment, Sea of Thieves, and Grounded, which kind of fit all of their parameters. I have to say, I like, think fine. I'm responsible for Pentiment getting on the list, and here's uh-huh. why. Um, I wrote a big article about like all the games that were rumored and kind of like rounding up the history of the rumors, kind of starting early this January with Hi-Fi Rush being the first one. And I made this list and it was like all these games with all these rumors that were like so much of them were frankly bullshit. Some of them were not like the Hi-Fi Rush ones are very much kind of like, yeah, this is absolutely Mm -hmm. coming. A lot of them were very um, unsubstantiated, like they're like Gears is coming or Halo is going to come or like whatever. And it's like, I don't care. But I made this list. And then because I was having fun and I was bored, the last game that I listed was Pentiment. And at the time that I wrote this, I wrote it and I said, Pentiment. 
And then the blurb I said was, there are no leaks or rumors that Pentiment is coming. I just want it to because it's a good game. Mm -hmm. And then like the next day, a report came out from The Verge where it was like, reportedly, the first two games are going to be Hi-Fi Rush and Pentiment. And I was like, this was me. You did Phil, Phil read my article and he was like, the people, they yearn welcome, for Pentiment. Everyone. <laughs> the people do yearn for Pentiment. Listen. It's true. And the people are you. Everybody should play Pentiment. It is so good. So happy for you. Yeah. Um, so if Pentiment comes to other platforms, you know who to thank. And um, yeah, everybody say thank you, Willa. My Venmo is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I think that's it. Um, do you have other things? I do have one more thing. I don't know. I'm, I'm, you probably saw this at some point. The report in uh, Sports Illustrated, their video game section of the layoffs coming to, uh, I don't know, how do they pronounce their name? The Z-A-U-M. Oh, the, Zaum? Yeah, Zaum. Uh, the Disco Elysium developer. Um, there was a report that came out this week that they're laying off a quarter of their staff and canceling a game that was in production. And then the next day, one of the writers of uh, one of the writers of Disco Elysium was talking about it. And it is like fairly brutal quote, as you would expect from one of the writers of Disco Elysium. It's basically talking about like for anyone who's unaware, like Zaum was like they've described it as like a like a cultural I forget what exactly the words they used to describe it, but it's like it's this sort of like art incubator thing more than a developer. Like they had this idea uh, that for like a very political game and, and the way that they wanted to get their like political ideas out there was with this game that is Disco Elysium, which is a, a masterpiece. And then after the game came out, there was some shit with the studio where like new leadership took over and a lot of the original creators of it who had this kind of utopian vision of what the developer could be ended up leaving. So there's like new people in place and a lot of the old folks got replaced. And uh, part of the quote is, it's the people on the top, the motherfuckers in sailing shoes and bow ties that fucked Harry, fucked Kim, fucked Robert, Rostov, Helen, Olga, Cash, fucked Elysium, fucked you and me too. They are not artists. They are professional fuckers. If you're not aware, those are all like characters from the game, by the way. But it's just like an extremely writer of Disco Elysium quote because it's like completely right and also very funny and very vulgar. Yeah, it's really sad to see this thing that was a model of game development that wasn't just about making a bunch of money. It was a it was about making a statement and they they did it and they succeeded so fucking well and they made like the perfect game to get their ideas across and then even that was fucking swallowed up by capital and ended up being destroyed by the same forces that are destroying so much of games development. It's just like, it's such a fucking shame to see. And the only good thing coming out of it is just like incredible quotes by people who are incredible at writing things. Something I want to also say is um, Zaum and the Disco Elysium like team has been the subject of like wild drama over this game and the ownership and like the team for like years at this point like since the game came yeah, out basically. i think if you are at all interested in this you should watch the people make games video on it which is called investigation mm -hmm. who's telling the truth about disco elysium it's a two and a half hour video but it's really worth watching i think it's really wild everything that happened at the studio like basically in the fallout of disco elysium succeeding really worth like diving into and interestingly in uh this piece one of the people who spoke to sports illustrated for this and like gave quotes who like was a writer on disco elysium uh has another statement that says uh talking about the the way that the studio has changed since the release of disco elysium it's like transitioning from the Soviet Union to the fascist Russian Federation, wearing the dead cultural movement like a skin costume, role-playing communism, lying for dollars and yen. Uh, People Make Games Doc changed a lot of things in the studio, personal dynamics, none for the better. So it seems like even after that documentary came out and like showed everything that was going on, that kind of like stirred the hornet's nest in a way. It feels like people were even more pissed off at, at the fact that people were then seeing what was going on and like the studio was like more fucked than ever after that, which is like kind of wild to see. I mean, it's like 
obviously like we want to see we want to see this kind of reporting you want to see the kind of people getting in studios and like seeing what's going on there but it is interesting to see someone at least making the claim that like the people who are in the process of fucking the studio up at seeing uh their fuckery documented just got worse because of it it's just i don't know it's such a fucking mess this whole thing yeah I don't know. It's just it's just such a bummer. Disco Elysium is like a beautiful, perfect game. And then to see that the developers like ate themselves alive afterward is uh man. It's distressing. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. Um, I think that is basically it for the week. What have you been up to in the past two weeks, I guess, since we've recorded? Yeah, I came to New York, ate some food, slept on some couches. You slept on um, one couch and one air mattress. I slept on mattress. one couch and one air mattress. <laughs> because you, we, <laughs> we, we blew up the air mattress first for you to sleep on because we thought it was cruel to make you sleep Kindly. on the couch. Uh-huh. And then the very next morning, you're like, I'm just going to sleep on the couch because <laughs> it deflated Because the air mattress bit. deflated throughout the night. I woke up basically touching the floor. And thankfully, I'm a tiny little woman, so I could fit on your couch comfortably mm-hmm. and stretch out the whole way. Have I been doing? Oh, you know what I'm going to shout out is uh, the book that I've been reading. Uh, I'm reading a book called Sunburn by Chloe Michelle Howarth. Uh, it's a book that's set in the early 90s in Ireland and like a small town. It's uh, told through ostensibly like diary entries like each chapter is like a sort of entry it's first person in this young girl's life this teenager's life uh they're a little more like long and eloquent i think than like than if they were trying to masquerade as actual diary entries but it's like chronicling her life just like going to school and hanging out with her friend group and it takes place like over the year basically that she realizes that she's gay and is in like like in love with one of her best friends So it starts with her kind of, you know, talking about how she doesn't really, when she talks about like boys in her class with her friends, she kind of has to like pretend that she's into them and she's sure she'll start liking them eventually. She's just a late bloomer and then becoming really obsessed with one of her best friends and kind of realizing what those feelings mean. And then it turns into kind of a relationship and how that develops. It's just a really... It's a really well-written story and it's very sweet. It's like, if you're looking for like baby gay yearning, it's like all about that. Like there's so many passages about just like her obsessing over details of like, of her friend, like the, you know, the clothes she's wearing, or there's one very uh, memorable passage where her, like her friend is like eating a hamburger and talking with her mouth open. And she like, fixates on like the food she can see in her friend's mouth because it's like inside of her mouth and it's just the sort of like obsessive teenager stuff that like uh i think is probably relatable to a lot of people who have experienced that kind of attraction but yeah it's just a great book really beautifully written uh i've just been really enjoying it uh and that's most of what i've been doing this week um yeah how about you uh yeah i mean I kind of already talked about most of the stuff I've been doing. Uh, the one thing I wanted to shout out is a book review uh, that I really, really liked, mm-hmm. actually. I haven't started the book, but I want to because of this review. Um, so maybe that'll happen to you. It's the it's in the New York Times. It's the book review for The Book of Love by Kelly Link. And the review is written by Amal El-Motar, who people will probably recognize as one of the two authors of This Is How You Lose the Time War. Uh, She also does a lot of uh, reviews of books at the New York Times. And I always try to read them because um, This Is How You Lose the Time War is one of my favorite books of all time. So I really like hearing what she likes. And It's just a really, really beautiful review, great piece of criticism on this book and why it like works so well. Um, And like as someone who writes criticism, I love finding really good pieces of criticism that do such an effective job of like making the reader understand why a piece of art is like worth experiencing. And I think this is one of those. So I think you should go read the review and then maybe you will want to read The Book of Love as I am going to um, sometime soon, hopefully. But yeah. Amazing. Mm -hmm. That makes me excited to read the review. 
Uh, while we're talking about like magazine articles, did you read the scam story? Oh my god! In the cut. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. It's the wildest fucking thing I've ever read. <laughs> it's, it's. I'll just say you've probably seen this going around. If you haven't, I'm just going to tell you the headline of the story is the day I put fifty thousand dollars in a shoebox and handed it to a stranger uh, by Charlotte Cowles in the cut. It is. An astounding piece. If you want to know what it's like to navigate the world as a rich white woman, uh, this piece will tell you the the like entirely other form of reality that some social classes are currently experiencing at this moment. It is a true roller coaster of an article, and I I I delighted in it. Yeah, that is a good recommendation. <laughs> but with that. I think that brings us to the end for this week. Uh, you can, of course, listen to us wherever you listen to us. You can follow us on social media at various places we'll put in the show notes. You can follow me at Robin Bombas, and you can email us questions. And I did this out of order. I'm sorry. And you can email <laughs> us questions at girlmodepod at gmail.com or ask us on co-host. Uh, you can find me on socials at the Willow Row. What should people email us about? I think we should give them actual things to email about instead of saying life advice. Tell us what games you want to hear us talk about or what guests you want us to have. Oh, yeah, that's that. Those are both good. Do our work for us. Give us episodes. Please do. Please tell us what games. (laughs) You're about to get a bunch of emails from totally real emails being like, I think you guys should play Drakengard 3. Yeah, wow. Yeah, email us about how you why want is, us to play Drakengard 3. Why is Mila No telling us to play Drakengard? If you don't want us to play Drakengard 3, then, um, I don't know, go somewhere else. Then our email is girlmodethepodcast at yeah. gmail.com. If you don't want us to play Drakengard 3, our email is pressstartpod at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever, whatever their email is. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs>